Okay, Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 9. Next Sunday is what's called Resurrection Sunday. This Sunday is traditionally called Palm Sunday. You may remember in your Bibles uh, when Christ came into Jerusalem the last time that people took palm branches, they took their coats, they put them on the ground, and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that same crowd at the end of the week would cry, crucify him. This is what's called Holy Week or Passion Week. Friday is called Good Friday. Well, how I many know it was not good for Jesus, but it was really good for us? I'm going to tell you why this morning. Luke chapter 9, verse 18, Jesus is asking his disciples a question. And I'm going to suggest to you this question is perhaps the most profound question any person on this earth would ever be asked, and their answer would determine their eternity. Jesus said this, who do you say that I am? Now, I want to ask you that same question this morning, who do you say Jesus is? Well, Peter replied, you're the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah is also translated Christ. Now, how many know Jesus Christ? Christ is not His last name. It's a title. Christ means Messiah. They both mean, uh, they mean that Jesus is God's chosen one. And listen, He was chosen to be the Savior of the world. Let me say it again. Jesus was chosen to be the Savior of the world. But then He said something pretty amazing. In verse 22, He said, "...the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things." He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and teachers of the religious law. And then he'll be killed, and on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. Now, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you've probably read that and heard that hundreds of times. But I want to ask you this question, why did Jesus have to suffer like that? Why did he have to suffer? The Bible says in Isaiah that when he was beaten, he was literally marred beyond recognition. It's not the kind of polite picture of Jesus that we envision on the cross. Why did that have to happen? Why did angels not come down and rescue him from the pain? Now, if I know that something bad's going to happen to me in a few days, I'm going the other direction. How about you? I'm going to do everything I can to avoid pain. It's one of the few things secular psychologists have got right. We typically avoid pain and pursue pleasure. But Jesus knew it was coming and went towards the cross, went towards the suffering. And I want to answer this question this morning, why did he do it? Now, I want to go deeper this morning. This is going to be a little different type presentation in the message. It'll be almost like a Bible school lesson. I'm going to give you a lot of information. You may want to take a peek at it again on the website. You can listen to it, watch it, download the notes. We've also got an iPhone app with all that on it as well. But I'm going to try to present to you a foundation for your Christian life this morning. I'm going to tell you this morning why Christianity is different from all the religions in the world. We're going to talk about world religions just a little bit this morning and kind of paint a global picture because I want you to see why Jesus had to do what He did. Now, if you're a young person, I want you to listen to me this morning because what I'm going to tell you, I promise, you will not hear in your schools and you will not pick up in culture. Our culture today tells us that there's many ways to heaven. Our culture tells us everybody gets to determine their own path in life. Even as good as the, uh, the program is to help people, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, God as you picture Him, God as you believe Him to be. Well, that may be very inclusive, but it's not very accurate because God is who He is, come on, not who I want Him to be. And we're going to try to understand the Christian message, the death of Christ, from God's perspective this morning. Uh, let's begin. I've entitled the message, Born to Die. And again, I want to begin by asking you this question are there many ways to heaven? Are there many ways to heaven? Uh, Do all religions lead to God? 
If we're on a talk show, I'd call you a narrow-minded bigot. You're very intolerant. Yeah, the truth is the truth. Now, let's, let's, in Time Magazine, they had an Internet article recently entitled, Is Hell Dead? Is Hell Dead? Now, they penned it after a book recently written by a, a semi-prominent preacher in America today, pastoring a Christian church, and basically he said, everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's going to heaven. Nobody's going to hell. It's a doctrine called universalism. It sounds really good. It's intended to be very inclusive. But what it does is it minimizes the, what Christ did on the cross. It makes Christ's death unnecessary if you can get to heaven by any way. And then if you particularly get to choose how you get there. Now, world religions have different beliefs about salvation and how to get to heaven. It's almost like we say the word salvation pretty quick, but this morning I want you to think just a minute with me. Why do I need, what does it mean to be saved? Why do I need to be saved? What do I need to be saved from? And this is the heart of the issue because the root of, that we're going to this morning is the place of sin that separated man from God. Now these world religions, for example, the Buddhists believe salvation comes through reincarnation and good works. In other words, you just get another chance at it. If you, you know, live to be a 90, next time you're coming back, you'll get a 92 and a 94. If you drop back, you'll come back again, and ultimately you'll get there because of your good works and your evolution of reincarnation. The Hindu also believes salvation comes by reincarnation. They add yoga and meditation until you become one with Brahman, their name for God. But what I want you to suggest to you is what they're doing is they're trying to work their way into heaven. You're going to see a common theme in all these world religions is it's based on human effort or human knowledge to get to God. The Gnostic believes that salvation is found through secret knowledge. In other words, I can become smart enough. When I understand everything, I'll arrive at this place called heaven. Uh, the Islamists or Muslims believe that salvation comes by submitting to the will of Allah and by living by the five pillars of their faith practice. Again, it's based on works. Come on, say works. Works are man's effort to get to God. Uh, Judaism, their believers believe that obedience to the law of Moses gets you to heaven. Again, that's based on works. It's what I do. It's, my, it's focusing on me. Uh, how about Hare Krishna? Anyone remember the Hare Krishna guys in the airport? You don't see them as much now, but I'll tell you, 20, 30 years ago, they were everywhere. They had their little, little symbols on their hands, and they were chanting, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Well, listen, they believe you get to heaven by chanting total devotion and obedience to Krishna, which is their term for God. So once again, it is works that get them to heaven. Followers of Confucius emanating from China, they believe salvation comes from the way we treat people and by making sacrifices. Once again, it's a works-based religion. New Agers believe salvation comes from reincarnation and karma. Karma is simply a way of saying, um, my good actions produce good karma and they'll make good things happen in my life. It's kind of a cause and effect kind of thing. There's good karma, there's bad karma. It's this force flowing through the world. But once again, salvation is based on works. Christianity, however, is different. Now listen to me, young people. We believe, that, and the Bible teaches, that salvation comes from faith in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Now that's not works, but it is grace. This word atonement, and if you don't know it, I'm going to teach it to you this morning. Atonement simply means bringing people that were enemies back together. 
Our sin had made us an enemy of God. Our sin had separated us from God. And what Christ did in His death on the cross, He atoned for our sins. He covered our sins. He made enemies friends again. He restored our relationship. Rather than working our way to earn heaven, we accept what Christ did, and that's called grace. Can you say grace? Grace is God's goodness and kindness to people that don't deserve to receive what God has given them. I'm not any better than any other world religion just because I'm who I am. What makes me different is the fact that I have approached Christ, I'm approaching heaven God's way, not trying to work my way to get there. The cardinal verse is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says you're saved by, by grace through faith. It's a gift from God, not by works, lest any man should boast. So if you believe you can be good enough to get to heaven through a series or succession of lives or good works or your practices, what you're doing is basically telling Christ your death was unnecessary. And the Bible teaches us just the opposite. Now, John 14, 6, Jesus made a pretty incredible statement. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am... Now, wait just a second. Now, I am a way. I'm the way, a definite article. The way, the truth... And the life, and listen to this statement, this would not go well on a morning talk show. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, why? Why would he make that bold, brash statement? And here's the deal, too. It's true or it's false. If it's true, it is climatic for everyone in the world. And if Jesus was just, you know, a liar, if he was not true, I want to tell you this. I've had a great life. I've been married to a wonderful woman. Uh, I have great kids. I enjoy myself. I sleep well at night. I have peace in my life. I don't live in anxiety and stressing out about the future. Uh, listen, I've had a great life. So if the Bible's not true, if this is all just kind of make-believe, I've enjoyed my journey. But guess what? If it is true, boy, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I'm thinking that it's true. Praise the Lord. And I don't want to take the risk that I may be wrong. All right, we're just being pragmatic this morning. But Jesus said he was unique and his way was exclusive. Now, the world calls it intolerant and closed-minded. How about if I told you, let's say we're on a, a tall building. Let's say we go to Dallas and we eat at Reunion Plaza. We're up near the top and the windows are open somehow. And we're on the edge and I say, hey, if you step off here, you're going to die. Well, you sure are narrow-minded. Well, you sure are intolerant of my right to choose what I want to do with my... No, I'm just telling you the facts. If you step off this building, you're going to die. So Jesus, in the same matter-of-fact way... How many know there's physical laws and there's spiritual laws? Sometimes you can get around the, the, the physical laws. You can get around the law of gravity. You go to an airplane and that airplane takes off and, you know, the forces that, you know, the wings tip and airflow and all that stuff, and you're up in the air. Well, guess what? You are defying the law of of gravity. But guess what? You're, it's only going to work as long as the engines work. If that engine quits, the law is going to take you down even though you want to stay up. And it's the same thing spiritually. Let me give you another example. Uh, well, let me ask you the question again. Who determines the way to heaven? Now, this is huge. Who gets to determine? Does each person get to choose how to get there? Or has God told us the way? Now, in America today, we're not even aware of this, but our culture has basically deified self. It's made us to the place to where we think, well, we have the right to make choices about anything we want to in life, and we get to determine the boundaries in the course of our lives. It's not true, friend. 
You're not God. You're not that independent. You are a person totally dependent on God. And God's last great reminder is that you go through the valley of the shadow of death. Everybody goes through it, and God reminds everybody that we need Him. And we we don't get to choose the way. We either reject it or accept it. Now, that's big. That's big. Let me give you another illustration. Suppose I I ask you to call me on my phone. You say, what's your number? And I tell you, you know, I give you a string of ten numbers. And let's say you don't like the numbers. Let's say that you dial the numbers in the wrong sequence. Now, you sincerely want to reach me, though. You're sincere about it. You show deep fervor while you press the wrong numbers. And you even connect to somebody on the other end, but it's not me. And can I tell you, listen, we don't have a problem with that. If, I, if, if you're in Australia and I'm here in Texas and you want to call me from Australia, you punch into your phone a sequence of numbers the exact way that it's supposed to be. Somehow it hits a cell phone tower, it hits a satellite, it comes across the earth, it, comes, it finds another cell phone tower, it finds a computer, and it finds me. And the reason it finds me is because you dial the numbers the right way. And can I tell you, Jesus told us what numbers to dial to get to heaven. He told us, if we want to get there, we've got to follow the pathway. And we accept it with the cell phone, but it's sometimes hard to embrace when it comes to choosing the way we live our lives. Now, I'm painting a broad picture before we get into the Bible this morning. Let me give to you uh, basically a summary of the Christian understanding of salvation. In just a couple sentences, it's basically this. We've got a problem that we cannot solve on our own, and that problem is called sin. Now, let me say it. Everybody's got it, but we're not aware of it. Every one of us are getting older. Every one of us will one day die. We've got a problem, and that problem separates us from God. And because of sin, sin is the reason people die, and sin will bring eternal judgment. Can I tell you this? We need help. It's like we're stranded on a deserted island, and we are not Tom Hanks. We cannot put coconuts and bamboo together and get off the island we're on. We are destined to die on that island unless we get help. We have a problem. But God in His love provided a singular solution for our sin. And it was through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to talk about that this morning because you may be here today and you're saying, well, I still believe that other... Well, you may believe that, but we're going to go deep into the Bible this morning. We're going to explore particularly the book of Genesis. We're going to look at the Old Testament and some New Testament patterns, why Jesus was unique and what makes His way different. Because lastly, I'll tell you that Jesus and Jesus alone dealt with sin in a way that was acceptable to God. In other words, according to the Bible, according to God's Word, you cannot reincarnate yourself into heaven. According to God's Word, you cannot chant your way there. You cannot do enough good works to get there. You cannot help enough poor people or give enough money because you need a sacrifice. You need someone to take your place in the judgment of sin, and that's what Jesus did. Now, with that kind of global background, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2. And I just want to do a bit of reading to you this morning from Scripture. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, as we talk about God's solution to the problem of sin. Now, go deeper with me this morning. Because it is a problem. Every religion finds salvation in something. But they're not dealing with the problem in the right way. Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. God is speaking to Adam in the Garden of Eden. The Lord commanded him and said, You may eat from the fruit of any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the fruit of the tree which gives the knowledge of... 
So what God has done is God has set a boundary. God has said, listen, I've given you all these wonderful things, but there's one thing you must not do. Now, notice what he said. If you ever eat from the fruit of that tree, you will... Say it again. Now, this word death, in its most basic definition, means a separation from God. When we think of death, we think of the cemetery. Now, physical death was included, but Adam did not die the moment he ate that fruit. After they ate that fruit, what did they do? They hid themselves. See, in the Garden of Eden, it was a place not just to hang out and live. It was a place of face-to-face communion with God. And the Bible says one day that will be restored. One day you will see God face-to-face. One day Jesus will look at you and He will call you by name. He'll look at you for the first time and He'll say, Heather. He'll smile and say, Vicki, I'm glad to see you. Now, right now we believe it by faith. Well, in the book of Genesis, they had that same experience with God. And what sin is, is it separated them. They hid in the bushes, and their first act was to put fig leaves or leaves on their body to cover their nakedness. Again, that's a picture of man trying to find a way to be acceptable to God. But this is where the problem starts. All the pain, all the heartache, and all the sadness in the world is because of this act of disobedience. And that sin gene affected all of us. The tornadoes that swept across our nation the last couple days. Uh, Just this past week, a 15-year-old boy died in gym class in Hooks, Texas. Four families of our church were impacted by his death. He said, why did that happen? How could a good God and a loving... Sin is in the world and sin brings death. And it's not just the little boy's sin or it's not just the sin of the people that were in that house trailer that the tornado blew down. It's this principle of sin and evil that are at work in the world. And the only way for you to understand evil and the goodness of God is to see this attraction that sin released into the world all this pain. Now, chapter, verse 23, and this is the big one. Sin separates us from the presence of God. What does verse 23 say? The Lord God did what? Sent them out of the Garden of Eden. Now, Eden was not just a home for them. It was not just a place to hang out. They had relationship with God, and the wall of sin separated them. Now, with that idea, Exodus chapter 26, verse 31, I want to go forwards with you right now, and I want to look at something. Inside the tabernacle, it says, I want you to make a curtain. I want you to put your imagination on just a second. How many have read through the Old Testament and see that God told Moses to make a tabernacle or a tent or a church in the wilderness? And it was portable. Then they built a, a literal temple one day. Uh, they built it in Jerusalem, and then it was rebuilt. Well, let's imagine we are in this temple, and it's got two big parts to it. If you can imagine, right across this line is a big, huge curtain that separates that side from this side. Out on your side is what's called the holy place, and the priests were the only one that could go in there. See, that's why Protestant Christianity is different than Catholics. Catholics believe that you still need a high priest, or not a high priest, but a priest to represent you before God. We don't believe that, and I'll tell you why. In this holy place, the priest would burn incense and they would bring food offerings. But in this curtain was pretty significant because back here was something called the Ark of the Covenant. Now think of Indiana Jones for just a minute, that little gold box, okay? Now that you've thought about it, forget it because nothing else was, was true in Indiana Jones about God. Isn't it amazing how some people develop their understanding of spiritual things from Hollywood movies? Well, anyway, in this gold box, you know what was in there? Inside it was the original Ten Commandments. It was a jar of manna that the Israelites ate. It was Aaron's rod. A stick was in there that had budded. But on top of that thing, this was pretty cool. There were two golden cherubim. 
And once a year, the high priest would leave the holy place and come into the holy of holies. He would go through the curtain. But guess what he would go in with? He'd go in with the blood of an animal that was sacrificed. Now, this is huge, and I'm going to tell you why. That animal literally would give its life, and he would come in there, and he would take some of that blood because on top of this Ark of the Covenant, it was called the mercy seat. And God's presence would be there. The glory of God would be there. A cloud was there. Uh, uh, smoke, fire. I mean, it was pretty powerful. God was literally there. And they would put blood on the top of that mercy seat. And that would cover the sins of the people. But the problem is they'd have to do it every year. Because the blood and animals of goats and sheep could not ultimately atone for our sins. The sacrifice was not sufficient. Now, with that background, Matthew 27 of this great curtain, I want you to go forward now to the cross. And in verse 50, Jesus is on the cross. He cries out in a loud voice and he dies. But then what does the Bible say happened next? The curtain of the temple was, it was torn in two. And from the top to the bottom, now don't you imagine that? It's all here by itself. There's no ladders that are there. No person goes in. Likely God sent two angels and they just meant, basically said, watch this. And what that meant was there's no longer a separation from God. Access has now been made. The blood of Christ has been shed for your sins. God's not mad at you any longer. Sin is not separating you from God. Now you can be adopted back into the family of God as a son and as a daughter of God. I want to tell you, this is huge, friends. When Jesus died, and you don't hear this much, but the wall of separation was torn. Now you can have a personal relationship with God. Now you can know Him. Now you can hear His voice. Now He can change you and transform you. This is what makes Christianity different. Buddha did did not do that. Buddha is still sitting in the Chinese restaurant. Come on, with his legs crossed. <laughs> Mohammed did not do that. Mohammed's grave is in Mecca. He is still there. And pilgrimage to Mecca cannot save you. But when the curtain was... This is why Christianity is different. This is why what you believe and you believe the Bible, it is God's exclusive way to heaven because of what Christ did. He removed the separation. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord this morning. Now, let's keep going with this thought. We're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, God provided a temporary solution for sin. The Bible says in verse 21 that the Lord God made clothing from... Now think about this. Adam and Eve, they've got leaves on them, covering them up. And God said, that's not enough. And he got an animal skin. Now I want to tell you this. He did not go to Dillard's to get a fur coat. Come on. He, he, he didn't get something made in China from Walmart. Two animals died. Now why did those animals have to die? Now I want you to understand this because you have said a thousand times Jesus died on the cross. You're going to understand why this morning. I want you to go deeper in your understanding of God. These animals were, their blood was shed. Uh, they died to cover not only their nakedness but to cover their sin. Now I want you to imagine this picture. This is a picture of humanity. When you're born, it's like you get tossed into the ocean and you're all alone and you're treading water. And you may tread water like this young boy did for 15 years. You may be like the oldest man in America just died last week, 114. 114 years he treaded water, but ultimately, friends, he died. What you need to keep you from drowning is a life preserver. But the problem is the life preserver is not permanent. 
Now, here's what I want you to understand. The whole Old Testament, the sacrifices of animals, the, uh, the life preserver is only temporary. What you need is you need a ship to come out to you to pull you in the boat and take you to land. And that is what Jesus did. He offers us salvation from the, per, for the, for the place of sin. Now, Leviticus chapter 17, I want you to get this. Sins are forgiven by the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. It's this incredible insight. Verse 11, it says, the life of the creature is... Now think of your New Testament. Romans says this, the wages of sin is what? Death. Now there's life that's found in the blood. Your blood in your body brings oxygen to your cells. It brings nutrition. It removes waste from your body. Life is in the blood. And when you're, listen, when you lose your blood, when your blood stops flowing, you die. But the principle is the blood had life in it. And God said, I've given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. Now listen to this. It is the blood that makes atonement for your life. Please listen to this point because this is what the religions of the world miss. God in His Holy Word says, blood is where the life is. And the only way you can deal with sin is life for life. And because our sins deserve punishment, it deserves our death. Atonement means, atonement is the covering of sin. It is bringing two people back together. Our sin separated us from God, but the atonement of Christ on the cross brings us back together. See, we are not on this earth all God's children. Let me say it again. When you were born, you are not God's children. You may be comfortable and cute, but the Bible says, listen, we are adopted into the family of God because of Christ. We are born in the family of Adam. We're born sinners, but Christ adopt us into His kingdom. See, the Bible says in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is... And if you don't have forgiveness of sin, your sin will be judged on judgment day. The Bible says all our actions, our thoughts, our deeds are recorded in a book. And when you stand before God on judgment day, and if you are judged for the standard of your life, it won't matter if you were pretty good, real good, or not good. The bottom line is sin stain was in your life. And unless that sin is forgiven, you will be kept from the presence of God. And an eternal judgment is before you. Can I tell you, friend, Jesus washes your sins away. The Bible says, though my sins were as scarlet, he makes them white as snow. In just a minute, you're going to hold the cup of communion in your hand. And it's an incredible thought that that blood that's represented there washes my sins away. Buddha cannot do that. Confucius, come on, cannot do that. Mohammed cannot do that. You cannot reincarnate. You cannot evolve yourself into that place. Only Jesus offers this great gift. Let me give you one more thing. Exodus 12. The blood of the sacrifice is the only way to protect us from judgment. Now, in Exodus 12, God is about to send judgment on Egypt. This is powerful. God's about to judge Egypt. You remember Moses and the ten plagues? You remember Cecil D. DeMille's years ago? And, you know, Moses and that great story. Well, God's about to judge the nation of Egypt. But notice verse 3. The Israelites are there. There's anywhere from six, seven hundred thousand to a million and a half of them. Look at verse 3. Each family must choose a what? A lamb for sacrifice. Now, focus back in on me if I've lost you. God is about to judge the nation of Israel, and He says, here's how you avoid judgment. Choose a lamb for a sacrifice. Verse 13, the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign. When I see the blood, why? Because life is in the blood, and blood makes atonement for sin. When I see the blood, I will do what? Pass over you. 
This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. So if you can imagine, you're in your home together, or maybe there's several families together, and you have a little lamb, and that lamb's going, bah, 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 and your daddy takes that knife and cuts that lamb's throat, and you say, my God, that's brutal. That's right, sin is brutal. Sin destroys, sin kills, sin takes the lives of innocent babies. Sin is behind murder, sin is behind rape, sin is behind violent tornadoes. Come on, sin is behind tsunamis that destroy lives. Evil is in this world today. Not just evil that I have personally committed, but evil that operates in the system of this world. It is like it's in the atmosphere and you cannot see it at work. But God said, when I see blood, I will pass over you. It will serve as a sign when the death angel will not come near you. Now, John 1.29, let's leap forward to the New Testament. What did, what did John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus for the first time at 30 years of age, when he saw Jesus, what did he say? He said, behold the... That does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Not just covers the sin of the world, but takes it away. That washes your sins away. You may remember your sin, but God does not remember them. Listen, most people... When you sin and ask God to forgive you, it's like going to your computer and hitting the delete button. The only problem is it goes into the trash bin on the computer and you can retrieve it. And if you've got a backup system, if you've got carbonite or something, if you lose it, if it dies, you can recover that thing and it's in your memory. But can I tell you, God doesn't have a computer like that. God's got an old-fashioned chalkboard. And He wrote your sins on that chalkboard, and they're listed every time one was committed. You know, Pat probably had about 50 chalkboards in her life there. But every one of them, sins that were written down, evil things that we've fought, done, and said. And an angel, listen, when the blood of Christ is applied to you, it erases those sins. Come on. And you look on the board and you can't find it and you flip the chalkboard over and it's not there. That's what the blood of Christ can do for you, friend. It can wash your sins away and it can make you brand new in life. Listen, you remember when Jesus was crucified, what was happening? Stay with me now. They're just getting ready for communion. When Jesus was crucified, it was the Passover season. And Jesus is when His disciples and they take communion in the Passover meal. Hey, friends, it's incredible. Listen, I'm going to wrap up with this, and we're going to do communion. What I'm telling you this morning, this is what makes Christianity different from any other religion. It's not because I'm better. It's not because I'm smarter. It's not because I'm wiser. It's not because I'm more handsome. Don't say anything. It's not because of any reason like that. It's because of the grace of God. Come on, that I could never work my way there. That Jesus and Jesus alone, give him a big hand, met God's condition for the sacrifice of our sins. Let me tell you, there's another reason Jesus went to the cross. Or let me tell you, it motivated him. John 3, 16, and I bet you know it. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. He loves us. The Bible says, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Anyone ever see a movie called John Q with Denzel Washington in it? Ah, he's one of my favorite actors. And if you happen to find it where they cut the words out, so much the better. Let me tell you a little quick story because it's a great picture of what Christ did for us. Denzel is John Q. He's just a great ordinary guy. He's a factory worker, but he's got a son. His son's 11, 12, 13 years of age. He's a little ball player, a little weightlifter, and the daddy loves his son. Well, the son 
falls out on a baseball field. He passes out. They take him to the hospital and the doctor said he has a heart problem. He has an enlarged heart. The doctor says if he doesn't have a heart transplant, he'll die. Well, Denzel's best effort was this. He said, well, you know, we've got insurance. Our insurance will pay. Well, guess what? Factory insurance wouldn't pay. They'd pared it down so much, wouldn't pay. So after what seemed like days or weeks of wrangling, selling everything they had just to try to protect the son, they realized they couldn't do it. And then his wife looked at him and said, you do something. Well, he goes to the hospital in the emergency room and he finds a heart surgeon, a cardiologist. He pulls a gun out and he says, lock that door. My son is going to get his operation. So then this story builds and policemen are showing up and snipers appear. And of course, they're looking all over America for a heart, you know, somebody to die. Well, here's how the story kind of wraps up. John had already, uh, Denzel Washington had already been typed in his heart and it matched his son. So he takes a gun and he brings the doctor and two nurses and they go back into the operating table. He lays down on a table and he says, I'm about to take my life. And when I kill myself, then I want you to take the heart out of my body and I want you to give it to my son. And I thought, my God, that scripture, greater love is no man than this than he lay down his life for his friend. I'll tell you this right now. Don't ask me to do that for you. I wouldn't do it. I may tell you I love you at the door, but I'm not willing to give my life for you. I'll give you some money. I'll take it a lot. Jesus gave his life for you. Of course, you know how the story ended. He's got this gun in his mouth, and, and then all of a sudden, of course, a heart's available, and the transplant's made, and everybody lives happily ever after. Jesus did this very thing for us. He gave his life as a substitute, as a sacrifice, in a way that only he could do it. He did it because he loved you, not because you were perfect, not because you were, could be good enough, but simply because you're treading water in the ocean of life, and he knows if he doesn't rescue you, you're going to drown for all eternity. So he reached down in his goodness and says, I'm going to take you to heaven with me. And if you'll believe it, if you'll accept it, I'll give you eternal life. Come on, give him a hand today, because that's why Christianity is different. That's what makes us different as believers. It's not about us. Come on, it's about him. To God be all the glory. The ushers are going to wait on you. We're going to show you a little video about the last few hours of the life of Christ. Reflect on this as you prepare your heart for communion. Hey, what does love look like is the question I've been pondering. What does love look like? What does love look like is the question I've been asking of you. Once believed that love was romance, just a chance. I even thought that love was for the lucky and the beautiful. I once believed that love was a momentary bliss But love is more than this All you ever wanted was my attention All you ever wanted was love from me All you ever wanted was my affections To sit here at your feet and tell me What does love look like is the question I've been pondering 
forgiveness of sin and it is the blood that not only covers our sin but erases our sin it is the blood of Christ that gives me the hope of eternal life for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life I tried to the best of my ability today to answer the question for you, for you, why did Christ die? But I'll ask you this question now, as you hold this, what represents the body of Christ and the blood of Christ in your hands, how then should I live? For so great a sacrifice of his life, what should I do with mine? I think perhaps Jesus gave us a hint of this when he gave us the great commandment in the Bible, you remember it? 
Jesus was asked, summarize the whole book. What it's, what's it all about? He said, it's this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So it's relationship. That little silly edgy video we saw at first. God wants relationship. He didn't want you to just think about his death. He wants you to enjoy his life for all eternity. I hope for you, friend, is that you will live for Christ. That we'll not just have a religious, traditional experience. But that you'll make a decision today that, to the best of my ability, on Monday, I'll live for Christ. On Tuesday, I'll take time to be with Him. I'll pray. I'll read His Word. I'll endeavor to walk in the Spirit. On Wednesday, I'll serve Him. On Thursday, I'll fight sin. On Friday, I'll share my faith. On Saturday, I'll endeavor to put Him first in everything. I'll come back and I'll worship with my friends and be encouraged and go do it again. My friend, he's worthy of any sacrifice. Come on, he's worthy of our suffering. He's worthy of our pain. He is worthy of our love. These elements in hand, remember now, this came from the Passover in the Old Testament when the death angel was there. When they saw the blood, the death angel passed over. Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. And then he took a piece of bread and a cup wine. Jesus said, take and eat for this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as I remember Christ, I remember not only what he's done, but I remember what he wants to do in me every day. And it reminds me of the price he paid. And it reminds me of my commitment to him. Lord, we ask you to bless this bread today. Let it be life. If there's any sick in our midst today, I pray that they be healed. Body, soul, and spirit. Pray, God, that we would live, Lord, a consecrated life. This next step, in Jesus' name, God bless the bread. In the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians even added this. He said, you do this in remembrance of me until he comes again. So this cup, my friend, reminds me of forgiveness, how the blood of Christ can wash my sins away. Though the Bible says my sins be as scarlet, God makes them as white as snow. But this cup is also a promise. The Revelation tells us that we overcome Satan by the what? Blood of the Lamb. By the word of our testimony. And we love not our lives unto death. I'm told to examine myself. When I examine my life, and I hope you'll do that now, are you living on the wide path or the narrow path? If you've gotten off the narrow path today, friend, I want to encourage you to get back on it. I want to encourage you today to let your heart be set towards loving God and repentance, not just a feeling, but a daily life. The second thing, we're told in Corinthians that many people were weak, sick, and dying because they failed to discern the Lord's body, which simply means they were treating other Christian people in a very bad manner. At their time, the rich were treating the poor with some disdain. I want to encourage you today, don't hold grudges today. Don't hold offenses. Don't be bitter. Don't be angry. Don't hold unforgiveness in your heart. Would you be willing right now with the cup of Christ in hand to forgive people that have hurt you? Forgive people that have lied to you? Forgive people that have not done what they should? Just let them go right now. See, the Bible says we've been forgiven. Come on. And we're supposed to forgive as well. So I want you to lift your cup to heaven because Paul the Apostle said, Do this until he comes. This cup is not just a backwards look, it's a forward look because Jesus Christ is coming again, friend. 
And this next time, he's not coming as a little baby in a manger. This next time, he's coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming, the Bible says, with the sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise. One day, my friend, because of Jesus, the people that you've buried in the ground that are Christian people, they're going to live again. And if you face the valley of death, your body's coming back again, friend. The Bible says for the Christian to be absent from this body is present with the Lord. Your spirit goes to be with the Lord because of this cup, friend, when you face death. But I want to tell you, Jesus is coming back. And for the first time one day, he's going to look at you and see you face to face. One day, Roddy, you're going to look at him and he's going to call you by name and you're going to get a big smile on your face. Come on. One day we're going to see him face to face. He is worthy of our praise. Lord, bless this cup today and let us live in a manner, Lord, that's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, let's partake of the cup together. Hallelujah. Come on, put your cup down and just give him a big hand. Stand to your feet this morning as we close. Come on, give him a real hand this morning. Stand to your feet. He is worthy. Come on, he's worthy of our praise today. He's worthy of our praise. All blessing and honor and glory belong to him. He's worthy of our praise. He loved us that much.